Hey guys, real quick, before we jump into today's topic with Rachel Richards, I want to invite you to join me in the YouTube community. Just go to YouTube, search for W2 Capitalist, hit the subscribe button and hit the little bell notification. So you're going to receive all the notifications when I post stuff uh, onto that channel. The reason why I want to direct you there is because you're consuming the same content here on this podcast. It's now going to be available on the YouTube channel, but now you get to interact, you get to leave comments. I get to interact with you and we can build that community together. So I want to invite you over there to join me on the YouTube channel. So just go to YouTube and search for W2 Capitalist, hit the subscribe button and that's it, right? So I understand the mobility of the podcast and be able to hear it while you're working out or or on a road trip or whatnot. Great. Please continue to subscribe and download here, but I want to make sure you knew about the YouTube option so I can actually engage with you and you can be a part of that growing community over there. Without further ado, Without further ado, let's bring Rachel, the money honey, onto the show and let's get our financial shit together, shall we? You are a W-2 capitalist. You are addressing the gap between your successful, fulfilling W-2 job and building wealth for your family through real estate investing. You are ready to earn, invest, repeat. Welcome to the W-2 Capitalist Podcast. Now, let's get to work. Here's your host, Jay Helms. Hey, what's up, everybody? My name is Jay Helms, and I'm the founder of this podcast and movement known as the W2 Capitalist. Today, I'm super excited to have the money honey, Rachel Richards, on the show. Rachel quit her job and retired living off at 27 years old, I might add, living off over $10,000 a month in passive income. Rachel has made a name for herself in the personal finance realm, which I'm super excited to talk about. Uh, And she is the best-selling author of not only the money honey, but passive income and aggressive retirement, right? She has been featured on the Penny Hoarder and the New York Times and has contacted to speak at colleges. Her valuable lessons have helped thousands of female millennials work their way out of financial despair. Although she's not sexist, guys, she's got tips for us too. She has successfully done what no one has done before, made the topic of money management fun, entertaining, and simple. Rachel. Welcome to the show. Hey, Jay. Thank you so much for having me on. Also, earmuffs it. Earmuff it. If you have sensitive ears, Rachel also talks like a sailor. So we're going to get into that <laughs> a little. I'm just joking. The subtitle for your book, Money, Honey, Rachel, is Get Your Financial Shit Together, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that's, and I love what your website says about how we as a society, we don't know how to do that. We're not taught that in school. Uh, there's very few parents who make that a priority in their households when they're raising their kids. We just don't know how to do it, right? And this is the kind of the concept of your books that goes into this, right? Because you, and this is not a topic you just chose to write about. You live and dream this and you were able to retire by the, by you were 27 years old, which quite frankly, my goal was 35 I am now 41. I don't feel like I'm retired yet. I'm not retired yet by your definition, right? Um, And so I'm jealous. So teach me, (laughs) Obi-Wan, what is the secret? Yeah, I mean, you kind of touched on it about us really being in a financial education crisis because at no point in our lives are we taught how to manage our money and we're left as young adults trying to figure it out all on our own. And then I see a lot of my peers and females especially just really feel these feelings of guilt and shame and embarrassment. And that's unfortunate. I hate that. I used to be a financial advisor. I've been passionate about finance my whole life. So I finally was like, I think I can create something that will help this audience and just make this topic really, really easy to understand. And that's what I set out to do with Money Honey. Yeah. And how did you, though, what gave you the background or the tools for you to say, okay, I'm not going to be part of the status quo, right? Because I feel like a lot of listeners that I reach out to, uh, they, they're stuck in this daily grind, right? That nine to five, because they don't know what else to do, or they don't have the confidence to transform. But obviously you said the heck with that. I, I'm going to figure this out and I'm going to do it. And you did it. 
but what was, what gives you the right to come on here and tell us, Hey, here's why you should do this. Here's why you should read my book. Here's why you should subscribe to my newsletter because you've done it. But how did you get to that point? Yeah, there was a couple things I had going for me. Um, first of all, kind of the overarching reason I decided to write Money Honey in the first place is I had all my family and friends would come to me all the time for financial advice. Mm-hmm. And I loved helping people. And at the same time, I wondered to myself, well, why aren't they reading or learning on their own or teaching themselves? And then I realized, oh yeah, personal finance is boring. Right? <laughs> it's dull and <laughs> complex and intimidating. No wonder people don't like to learn about it. So then I thought to myself, well, how can I take this topic and make it sassy and fun and simple. And that's where the idea for Money Honey came from. And it it has been more successful than I ever could have imagined. It has over 550 five-star reviews now on Amazon. And it's just really resonated with millennials especially. Yeah. Um, and, you know, when I first wrote the book, it was in 2017. I wasn't doing it to really monetize it or create this income stream. It was just more of a passion project, something I felt compelled mm. to do. But by that time, I had started to invest in real estate. So my husband and I bought our first duplex that year. I had published my book. So we had these two passive income streams, rental income and royalty income. And I foc- we just focused on growing those both as much as we possibly could over the next few years so that we could eventually achieve financial independence. So fast forward to today, we own almost 40 rental units in Kentucky. And I just launched last year, I just launched my second best-selling book. So, um, you know, a rental income in a normal month is bringing anywhere from seven to $12,000 per month in profit. And then my books, I, in February, I just had my first $7,000 month in book profit. So the, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. These income streams have really grown and we've been able to fully replace our income and basically achieve financial independence. So that's what I try to teach to other people now. Yeah. And I love that you're, you make your husband a part of it or he wants to be a part of it, right? Does he also have financial freedom or does he work now or what's, what's, what's his story? I want to get the whole picture here, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you asked. And and one thing I'll say is I call myself retired, but that's people define that differently. So I don't Mm. mean I'm just not working. Really. I use the words retired and financially independent interchangeably. So I work because I want to, not because I have to. Yeah. And then same thing with Andrew. He actually is in a career that he loves. He's really passionate about. So he just doesn't want to quit. But, you know, in terms of finances, we could, we could both stop working if we wanted yeah. to. And you guys don't have kids yet, right? As part of your bio, you've got just the two of you and the and your dog, right? Yes, There's a lot of our dog, dog which we might hear on the call if she goes crazy. <laughs> but <Which> yeah. <laughs> uh, but I love that, you know, a lot of people get into, um, start seeking financial freedom when they, when they've already had kids. Right. And the fact that you guys have already done it and this and accomplished this, once you start having kids, you already have the choice, right. That you can say, well, I want to be full-time dedicated to the family or not. Either way is fine. Whatever, whatever your case is, I want to be that way. Right. Uh, we're talking about my kids that you'll probably hear the kids in the background if we hear your dog kind of thing. And, but you guys have already figured that out. So that now that when you start family, if that's your, if that's the path you choose, you already have that. Um, and I forget where I was going with that point. So let's move on to the next. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, I'll say too, yeah, having that freedom is absolutely amazing. Um, you know, a lot of people, I think they feel like, oh, I have kids, so I can't try to work mm. towards financial independence or, yeah. you know, they're older and they say it's too late for me. Yeah. And I just have to encourage people, you know, I've never made six figures. Mm. We didn't receive an inheritance. We've kind of, mm. been, we've built this all by ourselves and we only just started in 2017. So we were able to go from $0 a month in passive income to $10,000, $15,000 a month in passive income in just two or three years. Yeah. So I always say that to encourage people. It's not too late. You can do this quickly. You can start this at any time and under any circumstance. So, and, but you both had, you said you didn't have six, six figure jobs, but both of you had jobs up until a point right? Or did you not? That's right. Yeah. So I um, started out actually making $32,000 in my first job after college. So, but I've always been good at saving. I've always tried to to say that needle hasn't moved a lot because you and I, we've got, I've got about 10 years on you, I think, or probably a little bit more than that. And uh, when I first started out of college too, it was right around that amount of money. It was like 27, 29. And I thought I was rich. 
right? <laughs> well, see, my wow. professors <laughs> and my family set my expectations it the wrong way because yeah. I had a financial economics degree, really great GPA and resume. And everyone was telling me with your degree, you're going to be making 60 grand out of college. Yeah. And so my expectations were set. And then, I, you know, when I was finding jobs that weren't quite that much, I was like, man, this sucks. You know? <laughs> um, that's just a little bit of me being entitled. But I, I always found a way to save at least 50% of my income. And okay. even when I was making 32 grand, I was doing that. So I had wow. that going for me. Yeah, so, right after I graduated. So give us some tips on on saving, right? And it's one, it's one of the concepts in your book, uh, The Money Honey. And I'm going to say the full title just because I love it. But it's a, set, a simple seven step guide for getting your financial shit together. But one of the concepts, right, is tips for saving money. Give us a few of those tips for it. And I have to imagine that if you start when you have nothing and you continue that process, it's just going to be that much easier when you do have a much bigger salary. Right. Yeah, that's so true. Although I will say lifestyle creep is really, really hard yeah. to not give into because as we've yeah. made more and more money, it's like, oh, we can live can nicer now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I try not to, but it's a struggle. Um, yeah. In terms of a tip on how to save more money, um, here's what I kind of teach in workshops. I'll ask people, hey, if you're trying to save up a lot of money in a short period of time, what kinds of things do you do? And a lot of people will say, okay, I'll eat out less. I will mm. stop shopping. I'll make my coffee at home. All those kinds of things. And those responses are great. I notice though that there's a common theme in those responses and they're all focused on decreasing your expenses. Mm. Now, cutting your costs is absolutely important and you definitely need to get your spending in line and make sure you're not living above your means, but it's also limited. There's only so much you can do to decrease your expenses. You yeah. can't stop paying your car insurance. You can't just not buy food, right? So what people forget is that there's kind of two sides to this. There's two ways to increase your savings. Number one is to decrease your expenses. Number two is to increase your income. And for whatever reason, we kind of forget about the second one. But the great thing about increasing your income is that there's no limit on how much money you can make. There's nothing stopping you from going out and making more money. So I always tell people, if you really want to make an impact with your budget and really save aggressively, you should focus on doing both, decreasing your expenses and increasing your income. Yeah. And, and I've heard, I've been sitting here since you brought this up, trying to think of who planted this idea in my head and it, and I can't figure it out. But there's a quote out there. That's, it's the Pareto principle, right? The 80-20 rule is that you should spend 80% of your time focused on building your income or increasing your income and 20% on uh, reducing your expenses. Is that the same philosophy you, you have too? Or is there is there a different way to look at it? I love that. I've never heard it put that way. I love the Pareto principle, but I love the way you're applying it. So yeah, I mean, I agree. I just think you can get so much farther on the increasing your income side. So it makes sense to put more of your effort in there. Yeah. And then another thing is like, you could just focus on decreasing your expenses, but then you're really limiting your quality of life. You know, so if I want to make a thousand dollar purchase on something I don't need, I would rather find a way to make an extra thousand bucks than to cut a thousand bucks out of my budget. And yeah. that's just me personally. But why do most people, and I'm guilty of this too, right? And I'm still guilty of this today. Um, so I recently exited the W2 world. There's a the whole story behind that. And you know, my wife and I, we keep talking about these things. There was a show that came on or a new show for HGTV is talking about renovating an island. And I'm like, what's keeping us from doing that, right? I mean, if we wanted to go do it, we should, we should be able to. And now that's led us to, well, we need to go buy an RV and we need to go travel the country, countryside because we don't. My husband and I talk about doing the exact same thing. (laughs) (laughs) Because we don't have a whole lot that's keeping us tied to one spot. And, you know, but there's a limiting belief. And, and this is where I'm trying to get to is that while wow, she's like, Hey, let's just go do it. And I'm like, how are we going to afford it? You know, how can we afford it is the question. Um, so why do we do that? Why don't, and, and you've said millennials a lot. I'm not a millennial, uh, but, a, but a lot of millennials get a bad rap of mismanaging money or not really understanding what it really takes to live in the world and the I'm going to use air quotes here for people who are just listening, real world, right? <laughs> but why do we, at, regardless of age, when we think about things that we need to do or if we want to save more, that we instantly go to well, what, I've, what I got to cut out of my budget, right? Yeah. Is it because 
you know, we're indoctrinated since we're, you know, five years old and we start going to school. Hey, you've got this eight to five and that's the only thing you can do for work and blah, blah, blah. You know, what drags us there? Yeah, I do think it's what you mentioned. I think it's because we've we've grown up in this society where it's the standard to just to have a 40 hour a week job. And you know, we are taught that being a full-time employed salary, employed salary or having a a full-time salary gives us job stability and income security. But I disagree with that. (laughs) That is not the case because if you are 100% dependent on a single source of income, there's nothing secure about that. What happens when your hours get reduced, you get laid off, you lose your job. I mean, we're seeing this happen right now in the middle of the coronavirus crisis and it's really unfortunate. So that's why I'm kind of going out to debunk that myth and talk about what I call income diversification. So basically figuring out how you can have multiple sources of income. That way, if one of your income streams is impacted, you still have all these other income streams keeping you afloat. And so I'm just trying to help people make that mindset. Um, It's a, a real life example is how it's impacting me right now. So I have four sources of passive income. Rental income is a big one of them. And in a normal month, making anywhere from seven to $12,000 a month in rental income profit. But in April, we made $1,000. Now, there are a lot of landlords that are worse off than me, but there are a lot that are doing better than me. The way I see it is if I can just break even on a rental income perspective for a few months, and that's my worst case scenario, that's totally fine. But the only reason I'm not in a complete panic is because I have all these other income streams keeping us afloat. So I'm just not worried about it. And that's, that's where you want to be as a business owner. You want to be at peace. You want to have financial confidence. You don't want to be acting out of desperation. So I always encourage people, even if you have a full-time job, you can start a side hustle on the side. You can start generating income streams on the side, on the evenings or weekends. That's exactly what I did until I had enough money to quit my job. Yeah. So I love that. I'm sitting here distracted by your bookcase because I I love it how you've got it all set up. But one thing I'm jealous about is you have two books, two books that are yours. And I, I can't even see my bookcase and no books that I've written. So anyway, you should write a book. Um, it's, it's on the table. It's, it, when, I don't know when, but it's, it's there. I, I don't know. We can talk about that offline. <laughs> yeah. Well, let me know how I can help. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, I want to get back to the mindset of, of how do you help people transform? Because this is one of the things that I struggle with. And I want to make sure that um, kind of the last couple of weeks, I've been really doing some deep dive on why I'm doing the podcast, why I'm doing the YouTube channel. And it really comes down to, I want to help people find the confidence to transform that mindset of you can work a W2 and you can have a, a side household for real estate, right? And your boss is probably not going to like it. It's maybe one of those things that you keep in the dark with your boss. Uh, but I don't know why I said boss the way I just did, but... <laughs> But you have that ability, right? You should not be scared to, to take that next step to earn more income. Actually, and one of the things, and you probably tell people this too, is, is hey, go ask your boss for a raise, right? Yeah. And I can't think of a time where I actually ever did that in my W-2 career, in my mm. 20 years of, of being a slave to somebody else and saying, hey, you know, I want to raise, Mm, yeah. And most people don't. Most people don't uh, kind of advocate for themselves in that way. Yeah. And I want um, so if you're listening to this or you're watching this, I want to encourage you this time next week, you've went to your boss and said, I want to raise. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's simple? the easiest way to make more money. And I will say, you know, if you're one of those people that just negotiated a raise or just got a raise, you know, maybe not everybody can do it, but the vast majority of people have maybe been in the same job for years and have never gotten a raise or asked yep. for one. And if that's you, then you can absolutely make a case, you know, um, write out all the value that you're bringing and yeah. look up all the comparable salaries in your area for the same position and really bring a strong case to your employer and go in there with confidence, easier said than done and say, Hey, I'd like to talk to you about a potential race. And here are the reasons why. And I absolutely encourage everyone listening to do that. Yeah. And I would leave out the word potential. You're going in there. Good good point. Yes. Don't, I don't want a potential, right. And you're showing your weak spot already. Uh, But anyway, that's, that's one of the things I've been thinking about here recently of, 
why to do the podcast, who should I be talking to? And that is it, right? And you're kind of already ahead of that, uh, helping people transform, which I think is awesome, which, which is why I'm, I was thoroughly looking forward to today uh, talking to you. So we've got multiple streams of income. We're boosting, boosting the way we earn. We're focusing on increasing our income, not so much as decreasing our expenses. Because like you said, you can only decrease so much, mm-hmm. right? And I, I, um, there's a quote about why I like to live in warm weather versus cold, right? And I, number one, I just hate cold weather. Even though I've been taking <laughs> cold showers and doing cold water plunges, one of the things that I enjoy about or this saying, it goes absolutely opposite of what I'm trying to do is that, you know, in the summer months, you can only take off so many clothes until you end up uh, in prison. <laughs> But in the wintertime, if you live in a a very cold climate, you can put on as many layers as you want to to stay. So there's more that, anyway, I don't know where I'm going with that, but it just came to mind. Well, that's like the decreasing expenses, increasing income analogy. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I want to talk about tips for starting investing, right? So one of the concepts of your book is to talk about, and thank you for feeding me these pointers because I have not yet read it and I apologize for that. It it is going to be on my list. Um, but tips for starting to invest, right? Yeah. So now that the listener has now um, added streams of income to their to their uh, to their bottom line, uh, number one of that could be going to your boss and asking for a raise. Mm-hmm. Uh, it could be actually if your boss is not willing to give you a raise and you know what you're worth, then you go and you find a job with another company that's willing to pay you that. But you've you've boosted the the listeners boosted their income. Now we've got more income that we can do something with. Mm-hmm. So. If I've never invested before, what should I be looking at? How do I start? Well, here's the thing that I always start with is because I think that a lot of us and young people especially don't understand how important it is to get invested at a young age. So I always use this example. It's called the penny example. So I'm just going to use you as my guinea pig. (laughs) So so I'm going to just have you guess. If I gave you a penny and I told you to double it every day for 30 days, how much money do you think you'd end up with at the end of the month? A lot more than $30 million. Oh, wow. That's a really high guess. <laughs> okay. Well, to give context, normally people will guess like $5,000 or 20000 or 100000 or whatever. I cheated. I know the answer. You already this, knew. Yeah. Already this, yeah. <laughs> so you would end up with $5,379,000 oh. or $368,709. So over $5 million just starting with a penny. And to me, that's incredible. This, it really illustrates the power of time and the power of compounding. And if you look up, like Google the penny example on a graph chart, you'll see that those first you know, 25 years or so, the amount of money is kind of, it looks like a flat line almost. Mm-hmm. It's just slightly increasing. And then those last few years, it just spikes straight up in the air. So it really shows people, you know, if you're 30 years old now and you have 30 years until retirement, like those last few years are the most important for increasing your amount of money. So make sure you start today. You know, investing right now is important. They say that the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago. The second (laughs) best time is today. Exactly. There you go. Sorry, I cut you off. (laughs) No, you're good. And then I would say, you know, the next tip that I give people is I think that the stock market feels very overwhelming and intimidating Mm. to a lot of people. And it used to feel that way to me because it's, it's a scary thing. There's stock tickers and ETFs and index funds and commissions. And it's like, how the heck do you even get started? Um, So I always just tell people, you know, you don't have to overcomplicate this. Keep it simple. You know, if you just want to start off with a hundred bucks just to get your feet wet, that's totally fine until you feel a little bit more comfortable. But my personal investing strategy is that I invest in low cost index funds and ETFs. I just pick three or four and then it's set it and forget it. I Mm. literally look at my stock portfolio probably twice a year. You just have to remember that investing is for the long term. And although the stock market will go up and down in the short run, as it has just in the past six (laughs) months, um, you're in it for the long run. So even when you are your portfolio is going down during a recession or a dip, just don't panic. Just keep it there. If anything, buy more, you know, invest more because everything's on a sale and then just leave it there for the long run. So those are just some kind of basic tips to get people started. 
Hey guys, real quick, I want to take a break from the action with Rachel and make sure you know about one of our most popular affiliates, DealCheck.io. DealCheck is the best way to analyze properties, and I'm talking about flips, rentals, burrs, you name it. They have one of the best calculators, not one of the best calculators. This is one of the things that I use in my daily uh, and weekly task of analyzing properties. I want to make sure you know about it. So go to DealCheck.io. It's free to sign up. You only have to start paying when you start unlocking parts of their software that you need and get this even for the prop, even for the portion that I use, it costs me five bucks a month when I, when I commit to an annual subscription and you're going to get that same discount that I get when you use the promo code W2CAP. So something special they're offering for you guys, something special I want to make sure you're aware of. So go to dealcheck.io, sign up and make sure when you check out and you actually put that credit card in, you're using the promo code W2CAP and it's going to give you 25% off. Now, let's get back to Rachel, and I want to encourage you to stick to the end of this episode and you hear about her horror story when it comes to her very hiring her very first property manager. All right, let's get back to it. Yeah, and there, there are thousands upon thousands of theories on how to invest in the stock market. I don't. Uh, I Well, let me back up. I haven't probably in the last – I've bought more stocks in the last month about that sell you're talking about. And I've made more money in the stock market in the last month than I have in the last 10 years because it's never made sense to me. And now listening to different avenues and kind of seeing, you know, everything's on sale. It has been very, very profitable for me. So I don't recommend what I did because I think I got very (laughs) lucky. Um, But I, I, what to your point is start early and just continually to contribute to it, mm-hmm, right? Exactly. And don't be worried about these huge fluctuations in the market. If you are worried about those huge fluctuations, then you go to something like real estate investing, right? Where there's this less volatile, is less swings. And I'm not talking about trying to do the sexy flipping stuff that's on TV. I'm talking about doing the boring buy and hold cash flow game that you and I both uh, focus on. Um, so let's talk about that. How, um, and by the way, I want to mention before we go any further, uh, the compound effect by Darren Hardy is one of the best books that talks about um, that penny example you just gave. Oh, cool. How you kind of keep contributing just a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time and how eventually it's just going to blow up for you. So, but I want to talk about your real estate holdings, right? So you've got 40, uh, almost 40 doors, um, yeah. which is a mix of what? You said a duplex was your first purchase, which congratulations on that. Thank <laughs> you. Yeah. So the duplex was the first purchase in 2017. Um, we have two single family homes and that's only because they were previous primary residences that we just kept and rented gotcha. out. And then the three other ones are bigger buildings. They're like a between 10 and 12 unit buildings that you and your husband own solely. Yes. We both own them. They're all, I mean, they're in LLCs, but yes, we own them together. Um, so you don't have any partners on those. It's just you and your husband. Correct. Okay. Awesome. So how did you guys fund those, um, you know, starting with a duplex and then as you went to the 10 and 15 unit buildings, how did you guys fund those? Mm -hmm. So have you ever heard of Cutco cutlery, Cutco knives? No. Okay. So these are <laughs> knives that are made and sold in America and okay. it's a direct sales company. So I, I always start here with my story because in college I was trying to figure out a way to pay for college. And I realized that working at American Eagle just wasn't going to cut it. Um, my parents <laughs> were so many to... avenues I was going to go down. I was like, yeah, working girl through college. That's yeah. usually the, uh, Anyway, (laughs) that was me. Yes. Um, I knew that I was going to have to pay for college on my own. And so I found this job with Cutco. It was the first job I'd been exposed to where the more, the harder you worked, the more you made. And so I took it and ran with it, sold a ton of knives and set records and made a ton of money. So I paid my way through school. And then Andrew is selling knives. By really? literally by selling knives. I mean, That's I paid, awesome. I had to pay about $10,000 per year out of pocket. Cause I had some, a lot of scholarships too, okay. but that's, I was able to make that amount each summer selling knives. So nice. pretty cool job. And my husband is a Navy veteran. So he used his military benefits to pay for his college. So I always start there cause we had that going for us. We didn't have any student debt. We really didn't have any other debt and we were both pretty good with saving, even though, you know, when we met, he was not making six figures 
he was later. And then I never have made six figures. So it was just about how can we be frugal? Yeah. Um, and we were able to save up that chunk of money in the first few years, you know, after I graduated, after we met. And then the other thing is that we were investing in Louisville, Kentucky, which is a very great place to invest. You know, anywhere in the Midwest, housing markets are really reasonable. So the first duplex we bought cost $100,000. And even in Louisville, that's a really great price for the location that we were in. What does it rent for? It rents for, for now it rents for like between seven and 800 each side. Per side. Per side. But yeah, when we first bought it, we both put 10K in of our own money. So we had our 20K down payment just from our savings. Um, Right off the bat, it was only cash flowing or profiting about 500 per month total. So that was our cash flow profit. But even then, that was an amazing cash on cash ROI. And then now we're cash flowing more like eight or $900 per month in profit. So I always tell him, this will be the best investment we've ever made. And it still is. It's (laughs) been amazing. So that was a really, really good purchase. Yeah. So my first duplex, we just sold it um, last year. We, and I don't, well, the reason why we sold it is because I kept seeing prices of duplexes go up, up, up. And I'm Mm. like, who is buying these? Why are they buying them at these prices? And I got so frustrated. I was like, I told my realtor, I was like, here's what I want for it. Don't bring me anything less. And then after a couple of months, he brought me three grand over and it was, um, it was a 396% return on that over three years. Oh my gosh, my jaw is dropping. (laughs) Yeah. I was like, how can we do this again? Yes. (laughs) Yeah. So yeah, I don't know what it is about duplexes. Maybe we just brought it at the right time. Um, But there's a whole story on that. There's a whole YouTube episode, blog, blah, 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 about all that. Um, So, so you funded the first one with, with 20 grand out of your savings, right? You and your husband's savings. And just for, just for clarity reasons, cash flow. how do you, when you guys calculate cash flow? because I hear 500 cash flow, that's 250 per side. That's pretty good. That's really, really good cash flow. So how do you calculate cash flow? Do you, do you include like vacancy and capital expenses and all that um, stuff when you do those numbers? Um, you know, that's a good question. So when I talk about my cash flow profit per month, I basically take the actual rents minus all the expenses, including the mortgage. But generally, I don't include CapEx. Like, I don't okay. include money that I'm kind of setting aside in a savings account for CapEx. Gotcha. Okay. Um, we've basically paid for kind of stuff like that out of pocket. Like, at our actually, at that duplex, we had to rebuild this whole side of the patio and foundation because we got a code violation and it was this whole thing. Oh, my God. Gosh, we spent six grand on that. Um, mm. So we're going to factor that into our actual returns this year. So it might gotcha. not look quite as good, okay. but it'll still be, I'm, it'll still be over 10% cash on cash ROI. There's, and the reason why I asked is just to get clarity because there are, I don't know, a million different ways to calculate cash flow. I'm still the realtor that I've used the most. We've done 13 transactions together and he, will send me a deal and he'll say, Hey, this has $800 in cash flow." I'm like, damn it. No, no it, it does not. <laughs> it does not. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, and you bring up a good point. Cause when I'm just projecting and analyzing a potential deal, yeah. I make sure to add in CapEx and the expense for having a property yeah. manager, because when you're starting out, you, maybe you're going to manage them on your own. That's what I did, but you still have to build in the expense of having a property manager because yeah. I'm guessing for most people, we don't want to quit our jobs to become full-time landlords. So you need to build landlords. In yes. Property managers. No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I always yeah. say if you really want it to be passive, make sure you have the expense for a property manager built into your numbers. Yeah. So I include everything when I'm looking at it. And then because I'm so conservative, normally my actual cash flow profit ends up okay. being a lot better than I projected. Yeah. Same here. So that makes yeah. that makes a lot of sense. So you said when you first started, I'm assuming you don't manage any of your any of your properties now? No, I have a funny property <laughs> management story. If you want, let's, if you want me to it. talk about like my biggest mistake, my biggest lesson learned, it wasn't funny at the time, but it's funny now. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, when we first were looking at hiring a property manager, I was kind of set on wanting to hire an individual, you know, like a okay. real estate agent, just because I was like, you know, maybe they'll be able to do it a little bit more cheaply. We can be a little more hands-on with them and show them what we want. So we did. And the first person didn't work out because she just wasn't making enough to take 
take it seriously. So I totally get that. Then we were like, well, who should we hire now? There had been this couple that had been working for us for about a year and they'd been doing maintenance and cleaning up the common areas and the properties and just doing stuff like that, you know, talking to the tenants a little bit. These were the hardest working individuals I have ever met. Okay. It was a husband and wife and they just went above and beyond, always had this great attitude. So we kind of thought, well, let's, let's offer them the job and see if they're interested and we can make them employees of our company. So we did. We hired them, taught them everything. Everything You can see where this is going. Everything started out great <laughs> the first few months or so. And then um, basically like fast forward nine or so months. And one day Andrew goes to the properties to collect rent on a Saturday because we have some of our properties have on-site lockboxes. Mm. And he's like looking at the money and he's like, this there's like a lot of rent missing and it was more than just the normal tenant being late. So we call them, of course, call them, call them, call them. Um, they've totally ghosted us, went MIA and wow. they stole $6,000 just that weekend of rent. But then we later found out that they'd been squatting in vacant rooms in our properties for almost a year and they'd been skimming off the top when they were filling vacancies and all this other stuff. They took our master key. So we had to get like every single door at every single property rekeyed. <laughs> So it was just an absolute disaster. Um, there's a warrant out for their arrest now, thankfully. But so this I is recent then. They have not been uh, apprehended, so to speak. Yeah, this was last year, I think. Wow. So they haven't, they've been on the run for a while. Um, so yeah. Oh, that so was- you employed modern day Bonnie and Clyde. Let's, <laughs> let's talk about that for a minute. Yeah, how, yeah. How, did they, how did they get past your radar as far as, I mean, they were just, it sounded like they were overwhelmingly nice, right? Yeah. And, and they were, I mean, at first, that first year where they worked for us, they, they really did everything. They weren't doing anything wrong. I think it's once we employed them Mm. that they, and they started seeing the kind of the cash and the Mm. rent payments, even though they were never supposed to collect rent payments or touch anyone's cash or money they found ways around that and got the tenants to pay them directly and then put it in our lock, this whole thing. So what ended up happening is they went on drugs and we didn't know that Mm. until after the fact, but all of our tenants were like, yeah, they definitely went on drugs. And then, you know, in retrospect, once you start thinking back, you're like, Oh, I see like this all made sense. Um, Because there were red flags that looking back, I wish I had been a little bit more adamant about, for example, you know, a lot of our units, I can fill them myself within 24 to 48 hours. No problem. Like when I'm on top of it and I'm, I'm doing it, there's no problem with that. But a few months into hiring them, they, I just started noticing that the rooms weren't getting filled as fast. And I kept being like, Hey, what's going on? At first I just assumed it was a training problem. So I would Mm -hmm. go over everything. And then I was like, well, let us just come to the showing with you so we can see how you're doing it. And then they would make up all these excuses. Oh, this person canceled. Oh, you know, this, whatever happened. So we could never figure it out. And basically it turns out that they were filling the room, the, the units within 24 to 48 hours and they weren't telling us and they were keeping the first two weeks or first month of rent. And then they'd be like, Oh, we finally fill that. So that's what was happening. So, wow. you know, there's those things where like, you just have to listen to your gut because I felt something was off and yeah. I was just like, you know what? I don't want to be this micromanaging person. Like I'm just going <laughs> to keep training them. And then of course, yeah, I mean, they're taking advantage. So the, Where big does the funny lesson, part come in. I'm waiting for the punchline. <laughs> I just think the whole thing's funny because I feel like a moron because <laughs> you know, to a more experienced investor, it's like, Oh yeah. Like rookie mistake. Right. But you don't know that when you're starting out. Right. Um, But you guys too, you're investing out of state, right? You live well, in Colorado we, or? we used to live in Kentucky. So I live oh, okay, there. Okay. So this whole time we were still living there. Now we are, yeah, we're out of state, okay. which would make things harder. That was going to um, be my, my follow-up question after you uh, told us about the story was what made you decide on Kentucky, but you guys are from, from Louisville is your own backyard kind of thing. Yeah. So that's why we just invested there. Cause I just knew the, the area really yeah. well. Um, but yeah, it's, you know, kind of the lesson learned from the property management scandal is don't be so cheap, you know, don't be mm-hmm. trying to cut costs and cut corners the way I was, because in hindsight, I absolutely should have hired a property management company. I should not have put my trust 
you know, with this amount of money and this amount of rent into individuals. Because the thing is, if I had hired a property licensed, bonded and insured property management company and their employees did that, they would have been on the line for it. They would have been liable, not me. And instead we're out of pocket tens of thousands of dollars because of that. So it's like, I laugh about it because it just seems so obvious in hindsight (laughs) and it's, you know, it's an expensive lesson I learned and that's fine. But I just encourage all new investors to don't skimp out on the cost there, you know, hire somebody legitimate. Yeah. You're not going to make as much, but it's worth it in the long run. So I got to ask you, and then we're we're getting close to wrapping up because I I know you got to go. How did you go from that to having the mindset of, of hiring a property manager that you did not feel that would take advantage of you? Well, here's what we've done, because this is still a little bit recent, but for several months, we just took everything back over. Yeah. Because we yeah. had trust issues, and we still Absolutely. do. You, you and would, we, <laughs> if you we didn't, were like, now we I would say to, you were on drugs. <laughs> yeah. We're like, okay, we need to fix the books. We need to get all the mm. vacancies filled, whatever. So that took months. And then, you know, as we were moving away, we just decided for now, we really need somebody we can completely trust to be, just to be on site for things. We are still managing everything from afar. Okay. So we're doing it all ourselves still. It's actually not it's not a lot of time. It's not now that we're removed physically, it just yeah. feels like things are easier to manage from here. But anything that we need somebody on like, you know, to unlock if somebody locked themselves out and we need somebody to run down or we just need a lease signed real quick. Um, my, I have a family member that's helping us out, yep, like somebody yeah. we can trust hands down, but we're still looking for, we're like interviewing and looking for a legitimate property management company that can take over. Yeah. That's, that's going to be a tough one to, to overcome. Oh yeah, it is. <laughs> uh, and I wouldn't beat yourself up too bad. I, I think you guys did all the right things. Uh, you know, I would say though, with new investors, um, you know, I started the same way. We managed our first property and we had an amazing tenant in there. We don't, I have nowhere near the uh, story that you do about property <laughs> managers, but um, you know, we just decided this, that's not part of the business that we want to be in and it is worth checking references and following up and just continue to uh, a build a relationship with a property management company before you decide to, to go with them. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. Good um, that's good stuff. All right. So where do I want to go next? There's so <laughs> there's so much, I don't know what, what to talk about next because we've got like five minutes, I think. And then, um, all right. So let me, I've been asking this question to all the guests here recently, <clears throat> as you are looking, we're talking about investing in the stock market talk about investing in, in, in uh, real estate. So I want to ask you, I usually ask people, Hey, where do you think the market's going to go? Right. Uh, and usually I mean by just the housing market. Um, I have my own opinions about this, but I want to hear where do you think the housing market's going to go? And also what do you think the stock market's going to go? Because those act independently of one another somehow that does not make sense to me, but it does. Right. Yeah. You know, I get quite like questions like this a lot, especially about the stock market. What's going to happen? What do you see happening? And I, I know people hate to hear this, but I'm always like, I don't know. (laughs) And that doesn't make me not an expert because I, you know, I'm a former financial advisor. I know a lot about how the stock market works, but in reality, none of us have a crystal ball. So I just always tell people if you, you know, are seeing people make these projections or predictions, like it's a little bit of a red flag. No one knows. They're just guessing and they're telling you kind of what you want to hear. I will say though, I was surprised when the market rebounded like it did. Mm. So I wasn't expecting that. Um, It still seems like there's a lot going on with coronavirus, businesses closing, people not really being able to go back to their jobs. And now there's, it seems like there's a little bit of a second wave starting yeah, in states like spike. Arizona and Texas. So it's kind of Florida. like, well, we Florida that list too. yeah, in Florida, <laughs> I mean, it, it seems like things are going to get worse before they get better. But again, it's like anyone's best guess. So I'm always just like, just keep investing, you know, do your dollar cost averaging, make regular contributions weekly or monthly into the stock market. And you're going to come out of head that, ahead of people that are trying to day trade and trying to make predictions. Yeah. So that's what yeah. I always say. Um, and then in terms of real estate, man, I don't know, because this is so different <laughs> from 2008 because they're, you know, the government is really bailing out individuals and homeowners and yeah. tenants this time. 
So it seems like maybe things won't get as bad, but I'm sure there will still be a wave of foreclosures at some point. Well, I guess I can't say I'm sure, but that would be what (laughs) I would think. That's what your crystal ball (laughs) is saying. That's what my crystal ball is saying, yeah. (laughs) So who knows? What do you think? I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Uh, I, I think we're headed toward a buying season. Uh, I I think in, but it all kind of hinges upon the, you know, what happens with the stimulus checks. Uh, if those end by, you know, right now they're set to expire uh, a month from almost today, July 31st, and they don't have any kind of, um, uh, plan in place right now that's passed resolution or whatnot. I think that'll probably come mid, mid, uh, uh, mid August. Mm -hmm. Actually, I think there's going to be a couple of weeks there. I don't think they're going to get it in before, um, before this one expires, <clears throat> which I think has helped reason reasons why I think it's helped a lot of landlords uh, have better collections here recently than a lot of them do because they're employed, you know, they're not employees, but they're tends to allow, you know, they've got probably more money coming in now than they do uh, than they did before. Um, mm-hmm. So I think there's that piece of it. So it really depends on that. But I think overall we're headed toward a buying period. I mean, you know, to your point, we're not in a, I agree with you that we're in a financial crisis, but when something extends for, I don't know, let's just say 50 years, 60 years of no financial education, hell, even longer than that, whatever the case is, is it's not a crisis anymore. It's a way of life. Right. And yeah. with, more than the last thing I, I read, it was actually um, author uh, Garrett Gunderson um, said that over 50% of Americans don't even have a thousand bucks in their savings account. Mm-hmm. The, you know, people who are living paycheck to paycheck, it's one of those things where it, I would be willing to bet those people willing to, uh, that are living paycheck to paycheck and don't have a thousand bucks in their savings account don't they only have one stream of income and it's their W-2, mm-hmm. right? So there's 40 million Americans that were laid off. Um, I don't know if you know Ken McElroy, but Ken McElroy did this explanation. It was very, it wasn't a doomsday thing. He just presented the facts. He said, here's what happened in 2008 when there was like, I think it was, it was a drop in the bucket compared to the 40 million Americans that were laid off Yeah. for this. Yeah. And he said, so here's, unless there's some other intervention, here's where we're headed. And it just, he presented the facts and he said, you know, I'm just putting multiples here because this is, it, it can't, it's going to get bad. I, I think it's going to, I mean, there's, you know, like 4 million homes that are in forbearance right mm-hmm. now. Um, I, I think it's just going to get bad. Yeah. Yeah. I think is I think we're going to – and we're in a political season, right, too. So I think by – I think it's going to be stretched out uh, until November, until after election happens, and then everything's going to go to shit. <laughs> and, and then Trump's going to spend – or I'm assuming Trump's going to win. Um, Trump will spend the next two and a half, three years to build it back up, and he mm-hmm. will leave his legacy being that guy right mm. that took us out of that that is my personal opinion yeah there's a lot of different factors that go into that yeah sure. and you know for a lot of the reasons you outlined i'm still telling people cash is king right now yeah. you know build up that savings account build up your emergency fund um do that first and foremost second thing you can do is just try to keep paying down any high interest debt and then the third thing you can do is invest in the stock market, especially if the stock market goes down again, it's still down from the all time high. So, you know, just keep, keep investing. Yep. And that's a great way to wrap us up. Right. So Rachel, thank you for being here. How can people find out more about you, the money, honey, by the way, is that a nickname like your husband came up with it for you or what's the money? (laughs) I just wanted to come up with this catchy thing and thought of money, honey. And I was like, that's me now. I'm money, honey, Rachel. (laughs) So So how can people get in in touch with you uh, and uh, find out more about your books and how can we learn more about getting our financial shit together. I had to say it one more time. So <laughs> I love it. Um, so yeah, a couple of things. So my, both of my books, Money, Honey, and Passive Income, Aggressive Retirement are available on Amazon and Audible. So ebook, paperback, awesome. and audio. Um, oh, Question, or do you yeah. read the Audible? 
No, I, it was just a time constraint for me, okay. but no, honestly, so... I, I hired a female narrator and she killed it. Like she did better okay. than I would have been able to. Okay. So she's really good. Um, I just came out with a new course and anyone can go to my website, moneyhoneyrachel.com to look that up. And then the last thing I'll offer your listeners, Jay, is a, my passive income bonus gift. It's kind of okay. like a starter kit for creating passive income. So I will offer that to your listeners for free and they can go to moneyhoneyrachel.com slash bonus. Perfect. I will make a link to that in the show notes. Cool. Awesome. Rachel, thank you again for being here and sharing with us your knowledge. Um, and I look forward to catching up with you soon to see what you guys are up to. Uh, yeah. Thank you. Thank you so yeah. much. Guys, Check out moneyhoneyrachel.com. She's got a lot of awesome stuff in there. I was looking on that earlier to see if I could do a little bit of uh, internet stalking to learn more about you because we, so we're here at the end of the show, right? And I want to say that we were actually just supposed to chat today. We were just going to go <laughs> chat and I was like, hey, let's do a podcast. <laughs> so uh, kudos to you. I kind of threw, I know I threw you off guard, threw you off balance with that, but uh, excellent, excellent uh, information you share with us. And I can't say enough about it. Um, well, thanks. So thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Rachel, I will touch base with you soon. Until then, you guys get your financial shit together. I had to do it one more time. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. I'll see you guys later. 